1: You know, the purpose of this program is not to tell you what to think. My job here is to encourage you to think as clearly and independently as possible and actually to consider the possibility that maybe truth isn't something that's handed to us by someone in authority. In other words, it's something we have to go after ourselves. That being said, this is why it's so important that we don't allow our thinking to become hyper-focused on who or what we're against. I think we should be more certain about who we are individually, and what we stand for. So with that in mind, I encourage you to come and find courage and camaraderie among your, among your fellow wrong thinkers and above all, to claim your heritage as a free individual. And then once you've claimed it, to go out there and make the difference that you were born to make. Some great sponsors make this show possible on a daily basis. I just uh, want to give a quick shout out to them. They include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, HSL Ammo, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, also com and SolarPatriots.com. Well, let's dive right in. I uh, I took a chance yesterday and watched a little bit of the uh, Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Now, I've been very aware of this case ever since uh, then 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse uh, had the misfortune of having to defend himself against uh, three very serious attackers maybe four very serious attackers in Kenosha Wisconsin last year he ended up uh, killing two of the individuals and uh, grievously wounding a third now of course the the ideological divide right the 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 Sides couldn't be more clearly divided on this issue. But I witnessed yesterday what uh, I have been told is something you could watch 10 years of trials and not see the kind of exchange like you saw yesterday between the judge and the assistant uh, district attorney. It was truly a stunning exchange. And all the more stunning... In the fact that it it illustrates this divide in America with the the Kyle Rittenhouse trial being one of the key focal points. And I'm having trouble deciding. Is it Kyle Rittenhouse on trial? Is it really the pursuit of justice that's going on here? Or is the rifle that Kyle used on trial? Is it the fact that he exercised the natural right of self-defense against a lawless mob? Isn't it interesting, too, how many people are suddenly concerned about, well, now, wait a minute. Wasn't he a minor crossing state lines? I mean, suddenly they're very technical about we should we should revere every aspect of the law. Yes, except the ones uh, prohibiting, you know, burning and beating and looting and otherwise victimizing people. But yeah, yeah. Other than that, uh, sure. Let's strain at that gnat while we swallow whole the camel of uh, mostly peaceful protests. Okay, let's yeah, let's jump right in. Wanna play a little excerpt from for for you from Tucker Carlson's show last night. And this is this is gold. But it also illustrates, you know, why this is such a divisive subject and it's very questionable whether what's being pursued here is, is really justice or something with a more
2: political goal. Here's Tucker Carlson's take. In the meantime, tonight, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial continued today in Wisconsin. In a move that surprised lawyers everywhere, Rittenhouse took the stand in his own defense. That is unusual in criminal cases, and it's especially unusual in murder trials. And the reason is simple. The stakes are too high. One wrong answer in a cross-examination, and you could wind up spending life in prison. But this case was different. By the time he testified today, Kyle Rittenhouse had already won the case, At this point, there was no remaining doubt that Kyle Rittenhouse acted in self-defense during the riots last summer in Kenosha. Every shot Rittenhouse fired was captured on videotape and from multiple angles. Every single witness who testified this week at the trial confirmed exactly what happened. And here are the facts of it. A convicted child rapist called Joseph Rosenbaum was released from a mental hospital and then went directly to join the mob that was burning downtown Kenosha. Once he got to the riot, Rosenbaum saw Kyle Rittenhouse and immediately threatened to kill him. Rosenbaum then chased Rittenhouse and tried to pull the gun from his hands. When he did that, Kyle Rittenhouse shot him. So Joseph Rosenbaum died as he had lived, trying to touch an unwilling minor. Okay, I'm going to stop him there, but...
1: woof! <laughs> you should see the Twitterverse right now. I mean, you know, Twitter is just absolutely ablaze. Figuratively, with uh, with people who, on the one hand, are are very convinced that hey, what Kyle Rittenhouse did was was uh, regrettable but necessary. He was forced into a situation that he didn't want to be in, which is running for his life from a mob that's shouting "get him, get his ass, get him," you know, and and very intent on doing harm to him. This came out very clearly, by the way, in, in the trial. But the the crazy thing is, there's there's Another side that totally looks at it as well, you know, Kyle basically got himself a bow and arrow and he crossed state lines to go hunting orcs, and that is just reprehensible. So, I don't know. A lot of people seem to think he is absolutely a murderer beyond question. And by the way, you can thank much of the legacy media for those misconceptions. People who take the time to actually watch the live proceedings of trials or actually sit in the courtroom often are going to come away with a very different view of what happened versus what the media is reporting and and especially what the legacy media is spinning it to be. This is something I witnessed firsthand for myself a little over four years ago, sitting in a courtroom in Las Vegas in federal court watching the Bundy family on trial. How the media reported ended up having to change because they just couldn't keep up with the facts uh, because... Well, the facts that were coming out were showing that it was the government that had more egg on its face. It was the government that was in the wrong, that was the instigator, that was trying to provoke and antagonize some kind of a a deadly response from either the Bundy family or from those who were there trying to protect them. So, you know, I don't don't want to make this sound like I'm, I'm cheerleading for Kyle Rittenhouse, I don't know if, if you haven't seen the video clip of him breaking down on the stand as he's trying to describe what happened at the time he shot uh, Joseph Rosenbaum. It's, it's pretty tragic. You know, but, you know, his opponents are, oh, those are just crocodile tears and, you know, it's, he's just, you know, he was just looking for an excuse to go out there and shoot people. Well, I'm going to say something pretty unpopular, but it needs to be said. Some people by virtue of their lethally aggressive behavior, deserve to be shot. Now, whether that was Kyle Rittenhouse's job or not, I don't think he went to Kenosha, Wisconsin, looking for an excuse. He went there to help people. He went there to help protect property. Why isn't anybody asking, why would a 17-year-old kid, why would a group of people, just citizens, show up to protect a neighborhood, whether they were asked or not? Come on, you know the answer. And it's uncomfortable, but let's let's go ahead and get this out in the open. The reason he was there in the first place is because those in authority. And I mean, the police, I mean, the city administration in Kenosha, um, maybe up to the state level. Abdicated their responsibility to protect the citizenry. The police were sitting back in armored vehicles, just basically watching people go nuts Torch a one hundred car car lot and and they did nothing to stop them now, granted again, it's just property, yeah well, they have insurance, you know it's not human life that was in danger, you know, except when it, when it is in danger, and what the jury in Kenosha is going to be asked to consider if this thing isn't declared a mistrial and dismissed with or a mistrial with prejudice actually if if the the case isn't thrown out is whether Kyle Rittenhouse in the moment that he fired those shots legitimately was in fear for his life. That's, a, that's all it comes down to is, you know, that's what they have to answer. And no matter how you slice it, this is not a win. If, if Kyle is acquitted, yes, I think an injustice will have been averted, but it doesn't change the fact. This is a young man who gets to carry with him for the rest of his life the knowledge that he ended two other people's lives. This is not a small thing when we come back on the other side of the break we're going to talk a little bit about um, about self defense we're going to talk about uh, why it's important for people to stand up and take that responsibility, but there's going to be a little bit of a a sobering you know foundational thought that underlies that, uh, that reality that if you need to protect yourself nobody is going to do a better job. Nobody is going to be more committed to protecting you than, than you are. I mean there, there are plenty of good people out there who wear the badge and uniform and would be happy to come to your rescue and bring friends but in your moment of need it's really going to be on your shoulders and it's a heavy responsibility and it's something that needs to be taken seriously. We'll talk about that the other side of these messages.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. This is one of those rare days where there is just so much to cover. I'm actually just a little bit concerned that, uh, that I will not be able to cover all of it. But here goes. Let's dive right back in. So we've been talking about the, uh, the case of Kyle Rittenhouse. He is a hero to some. He is uh, the devil to others. I think the truth is somewhere in between. Frankly, I don't think that this young man went out there with evil intent. And with the idea that, yeah, I'm going to get to kill me some humans today. I think the fact that he was armed when he went into a riot zone illustrates that he was serious about protecting himself. I also look at the the way he conducted himself when he was under attack. And I don't know who trained this young man, but, you know, as, uh, as a person with a modest amount of defensive firearms training, I have to say he was trained well. His situational awareness was good. He shot those who deserved to be shot because they were posing a deadly threat at that moment. He did not shoot anybody else. I guess I can say it this way. 100% of the people who didn't attack Kyle did not get shot or shot at. He wasn't spraying indiscriminate fire into the crowd. But there was something that, that underlies this. And again, the jury is going to have to sort this out. We'll see. It's, it's become kind of a, you know, a passion play of sorts, you know, that, that really clearly shows you the divide ideologically that, that exists in this country. But the jury are going to be the ones who have to say whether or not he was justified. And it's it's pretty clear at least from the earlier testimony this week, where one of the individuals he shot, Gage Grosskreutz, who had his bicep taken off his arm by Kyle's rifle, admitted that Kyle only shot him after Gage ran up and pointed a gun in his face. So it was uh, was pretty clear self-defense or at least it seemed to satisfy, you know, the, the need for self-defense. There were other charges thrown at him, but let's touch on the idea, why would someone need to, to assume responsibility for, you know, protecting their community? This is one of the places where I think this Rittenhouse trial is actually a marvelous teaching opportunity about a couple of very important topics, one being the natural right to self-defense. And I'm going to just affirm here, just just so you know, I'm I'm not soft on the idea of self-defense. But the training that I've received over the last 20 years or so has really impressed on me that mindset and understanding of when it is appropriate to bring lethal force into a situation is as important, if not more important, than the actual skills of how to run a particular gun, how to shoot accurately under pressure how to reload, how to clear malfunctions, how to use tactics to, you know, avoid being shot yourself and to protect those things that are dearest to you. I mean, in fact, I've I've mentioned this to to friends and I, I still maintain it. It was really curious that the more training I got, and I'm coming from the position of having attended about a dozen very comprehensive shooting classes meaning more than 2 days of shooting classes that uh, that have trained me in this um the the more training i get the less likely i feel that it is that i will ever have to point a gun at another human being and it's not because it turned me into rambo it didn't give me super senses and you know the ability to detect you know evil intent among my fellow men i just understand that awareness is a big part of staying out of trouble. And I believe uh, Masad Ayyub, who for many years has taught that the best gunfight is the one that you avoid. So if a person is paying attention to what's going on around them, they can pick up on clues that, hey, this person is really keying in on me or this person's movements or these people's movements correspond with my own's in a way that's making me think maybe they have something uh, up their sleeve. And most criminals are just looking for easy prey. They're looking for somebody that they can quickly victimize and scurry on their way like the cockroaches that they are. When someone shows awareness, that disrupts their ability to be able to attack by surprise. And surprise is usually what's what's working things to the criminal's advantage. Somebody with their head down, looking at their phone, their mind a million miles away, is very different from a person who is walking down the street, carrying themselves with confidence, and actively looking at what's going on around them. Criminals understand this. Predators understand this. They're looking for something that looks like food. They're not looking for something that's likely to fight back. But you have to consider that even in the best possible situation... That is something where a jury would look at this or a grand jury would look at it and say, no, Bill, we're not going to charge this person with any kind of offense for having shot another person or killed another person in self-defense because it's so clear cut. Even in the best situation, you are still very likely to experience uh, any of the following, maybe all of them. You will probably lose your job. Because you're going to be in the paper, your picture, your name, the publicity, no matter how justified, you take another person's life, it is going to have negative implications for your employer. Your, your marriage is likely to end. The stress of going through a trial, which, you know, you're going to need, you're talking probably a six-figure kind of uh, legal bill by the time it's all done. And again, this is when things go right. This is not when there's any questionable idea about were you justified or not. Your kids are going to have to be uprooted. You'll probably have to move them to either a different city or at least a different school because they will be subject to the tormenting of their peers. Hey, is your dad a killer? or your mom a killer? There's likely to be PTSD. There's likely to be years of nightmares, depression, And this is when everything goes right. Your reputation is going to be dragged through the dirt. And here's the kicker. It's after going through all that, in other words, probably a few years down the road, that you'll be able to to really evaluate and ask yourself, is my conscience still at peace with the fact that I defended myself with deadly force? And if the answer is yes, then you know, then there's your answer. And if the answer is no, well, there's another burden you get to carry. And that's if you avoided prison, if you avoided a very costly civil lawsuit. So I'm not trying to tell you, therefore, be a pacifist and do not defend yourself, but I'm just suggesting that even in the very best of situations, it's not going to be a fun ride. And of course when you have a hostile media out there actively urging about half the population to to hate you and to wish for your death openly. Yeah, that's that's a big problem. That's about as ugly as it gets. So when we come back on the other side of the break here, got an article here from Christopher Roach about the need for citizenship and courage. And I'm just going to tell you right up front, he's he's praising Kyle Rittenhouse for the good things that he did. This does not mean he's ideologically endorsing, you know, everything that Kyle has ever said or done. But in the case of defending his community or defending a community that needed defense because the state wasn't doing its part. Yeah, Kyle was actually doing a pretty responsible job better than many adults were doing at that point. Make of that what you will. By the way, I have links in the show notes. I actually have way more links to articles than I possibly can cover in today's show. So I would encourage you, take a little trip by my website, thebryanhideshow.com. Pay close attention to my sponsors. Give them a little bit of love. If you're very curious, click on the one, governyourincome.com. If you are seriously looking to be independent, not in a position to be told, take the jab or anything else, This is an option that you may not have considered, and it's not for everybody, but it might be the right one for you. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde
1: Show. Show. All right, we are back I hope that uh, I'm not adding fuel to the fire with, with the topics I'm covering so far. But this uh, this Kyle Rittenhouse trial has been such an interesting thing. And, and to see the vindictiveness with which the uh, prosecution has continued to go after him. I've never seen a judge scream in his courtroom like the judge was screaming at uh, ADA Banger yesterday in uh, in Wisconsin. It was crazy. I mean, the judge was so mad, his chair was shaking from how forcefully he was shouting at this, uh, this prosecutor. That's something you don't see all the time. And someone would say, well, the judge is uh, being unfair. He's biased. He's just trying to help Kyle get off here. But let's hope that justice prevails. I'm confident it's, it's going to, but probably not in the way that uh, some people, at least half the country, seems to think. I want to share with you an article here from Christopher Roach. This was published on American Greatness or AmGreatness.com. Citizenship and Courage. Now, the subtitle here is The World is Better for Young Men Like Kyle Rittenhouse Defending Their Communities. Christopher Roach says in recent weeks, a series of high-profile criminal cases stemming from private citizens acting to protect their communities have been in the spotlight. A young Kyle Rittenhouse worked with other volunteers to protect Kenosha, Wisconsin from violent Antifa and BLM rioters. He ended up being attacked and defended himself from a violent mob, killing two and wounding one in the process. Now, in Georgia, a father and son, frustrated by a series of thefts, tried to stop a suspected burglar, Ahmed Arbery. Arbery ended up charging them and reached for the son's gun, only to be shot dead in the melee. Now one person's or one man's courage is another man's rash vigilantism. And critics say Rittenhouse and the McMichaels were stupid and full of bloodlust for getting involved. They should have left those matters to the professionals. Now this cautionary message is widespread, it does not come exclusively from the left. That's true. There are a lot of finger waggers on the right. Well he never should have been there in the first place, and never should have crossed the state line with guns. And who gives a gun to a kid? Okay. Easy there, Karen. Pull up a chair. We'll explain why. In this case, Christopher Roach talks about the managerial regime citizen. And he says professional civil service and bureaucratic systems are the foundations of the managerial state. Now, the system justifies itself because of the perceived benefits of specialization. Professionalization of government tasks, jealous guarding of bureaucratic turf, similar to private sector unions. The extensive state bureaucracy encourages a different relationship between the state and its citizens. Under this system, citizens are more like consumers or spectators whose electoral control consists of symbolic, no-confident votes at most, no-confidence votes rather at most. Criticism, initiative, and input into matters of government are usually looked at skeptically, as evidenced by the recent deployment of the FBI against parents who dared speak out against critical race theory. As Terry McAuliffe's infamously summed up the matter, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. So without getting into a pedantic discussion of democracy and republics, it's fair to say that the United States evolved quickly into a democratic republic. The Republican part consisted not merely in the existence of a constitution and the conduct of elections, but also from citizen participation in various government functions, whether it was in the jury system, the militia, the posse comitatus, or acting as part-time citizen legislatures legislators. rather. He says Alexis de Tocqueville observed that the great genius of Americans came from the people's capacity for organization and problem-solving without the need for official intervention in contrast to continental Europe. Tocqueville said, In the United States, as soon as several inhabitants have taken an opinion or an idea they wish to promote in society, they seek each other out and unite together once they have made contact. From that moment, they are no longer isolated, but have become a power seen from afar whose activities serve as an example and whose words are heeded. End quote. So to flourish, a Republican system needs more than just voting, but also patriotism, public-spiritedness, and courage. Mere self-interest would never counsel one to resist threats while serving on a jury, or rush to the barricades to protect against an invading threat, or inconvenience oneself to help the victim of a crime. Instead, self-interest is always individually rational, but collectively disastrous to fob off one's duties to others and to hang back. Now, Mr. Roach says this latter way of thinking is familiar to me from the years I spent in New York and Chicago. Both are large, anonymous urban centers with a great deal of diversity. Both have large police departments and elaborate city services. But the dark side of these cities resides in the cynical and widespread desire to not get involved. From the Kitty Genovese murder to the modern-day no-snitching culture, a culture hostile to the concept of civic duty has led to the coarsening of life, the explosion of crime, the growth of government, and the destruction of the community. And he says this is not surprising. Many of the people in both cities are not recognizably American in any meaningful sense. From whence would they acquire habits in decline among Americans themselves? As the country's become more urbanized, which has been a century-long process, and has deliberately favored immigration from illiberal parts of the world, that's a 50-year process, it has become less respectful of Republican virtues and less capable of self-government. Now, the prosecutions of those few who do take initiative Rittenhouse, George Zimmerman, Bernie Getz reinforces the supine and servile mentality that serves only to increase the relative power of the managerial class as distinguished from ordinary citizens. Now, a lot can be said about Kyle Rittenhouse and the other men who went out into the streets of Kenosha last summer. Perhaps these self-defense volunteers were reckless, dangerous, foolhardy or naive. But even if the volunteers were all those things, they were also noble, brave, and pro-social. Kyle Rittenhouse worked as a lifeguard. He spent the earlier part of the day cleaning up graffiti. In several interviews of him, he appears unbearably earnest and innocent. Even in his use of force, he shot only the few people directly attacking him. He did not panic, and he declined to impose rough justice on the mob. He even tried to turn himself into the police who incompetently sped past him. Now, if he was young and inexperienced, so are a great many young men. Indeed, physical courage is something of a young man's game. But one cannot label the Army veterans and local business owners as immature when they decide to take action because the state had abandoned them and their community. They were doing something brave, and they were doing something that an incompetent and indifferent managerial system made necessary. So whether from the left or the right, the constant mantra of caution eventually cede all power and initiative to a hostile state. It's an ethic of weakness and humiliation, the opposite of the spirit of 1776 at every possible opportunity for courageous civic engagement, a letter to the editor, appearing at a protest, making a donation, or simply refusing to utter lies. There's always a choice to be made between cautious cowardice and civic-minded courage. The recent explosion of cancel culture has thrived only, in part, because of the neutered agreeableness and abject fear that's become the national norm. Year after year, teachers, military officers, managers, cops, lawyers, social workers, and everyone embedded in the system console themselves that they'll do the right thing someday when they have the power to do it someday when they're in charge or at least more influential. What do you think of that? But after decades of shrugging compliance, one's beliefs tend to conform more to one's actions as a matter of psychological self-preservation. The notion of conforming one's actions to one's beliefs, indeed, even the category of personal beliefs, becomes unfamiliar. Even mild criticism feels dangerous, radical, and unseemly. In spite of the self-consolation stories people tell to themselves, few people find greater moral courage on the eve of receiving a pension than they do as a young person full of idealism and energy. So to be clear, one should be prudent and strategic but civilization and self-government cannot survive solely by rational self-calculation. Purely self-interested rationality always says it's good for someone to do something, but not you. As we used to learn as kids, if everyone, everyone behaved that way, well, nothing would get done. So Christopher Roach says, the bottom line is someone has to stand up and do something. And when that someone appears, we should be forgiving and even admiring of his courage in a world where so few people stick their necks out. And this world is better for young men like Kyle Rittenhouse defending their communities. That's a pretty bold opinion, but I, I happen to agree with it.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde
1: Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Quick shout-out here to lifesavingfood.com. This is one of my great sponsors, and I've got a link on my show notes page at the thebrianhydeshow.com that'll take you right to them. I talk a lot about food storage. I think it's a great idea. Not because the apocalypse is upon us, but just because you never know. You never know when some unexpected thing is going to happen. It could be job loss. It could be an illness. It could be any number of things. Natural disasters, man-made disasters, political unrest, disease. Okay, you get the picture. But having something set aside that strengthens your position that gives you the ability to stand on your own feet to take care of you and yours, and maybe even a little extra to take care of your neighbors or extended family. People who do this sleep better at night. And if you've been looking around you and going, man, things seem kind of unstable right now. Well, it's because they are. (laughs) And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we don't have the power to control, but the one thing we do have power to control is how well we are positioned to weather the storm and i mention this because right now lifesavingfood.com is offering my listeners a 25% discount if you use the coupon code hide hyde at checkout click on the link in my show notes you'll see what i'm talking about yeah food's expensive whether it's food storage or whether it's you know buying it at the store but the bottom line is having it is essential And the time to do the shopping is now while it's available and not when there's panic and everybody's trying to get whatever they can, you know, at the last moment. All right, moving on. You know, if you're serious about understanding how the world works, you've got to pay attention to economists. In fact, you've got to become kind of an economist yourself. I strongly recommend Henry Hazlitt's book, Economics in One Lesson, as a great way to just understand what free market economics really is all about. And it's not just about, well, it's the maximum amount of freedom and government off your back and, you know, a middle finger in the air anytime a regulator shows up. It's the study of why people make the choices they do, how people interact, how they engage with one another. But we're talking voluntary choices. And the smartest choices are made by people who are considering not just the immediate desired effect of a particular action or policy. But who are also considering what are the likely unintended consequences. In other words, they're asking what could go wrong in doing this. And they use that to to be a little bit of a cautionary pressure to not just jump into something and then, oh, wow, we didn't see that coming. So, with that said, I would encourage you to get acquainted with economists. Pay attention to what economists are saying. And this doesn't mean that only the economists know what's going on, but I'm telling you they have a better basis of understanding why the world works the way that it does. For instance, if Raymond J. March hadn't written an article about how the FDA is now coming after smart socks which monitor a baby's pulse and oxygen levels while it sleeps. How would we have known about its latest crusade? This is from the American Institute for Economic Research, which is one of my treasured sources in my quest for material each day on this show. I'd never heard of Smart socks before, but uh, listen to this. Raymond March says, when the U.S. struggled to provide enough COVID tests to track outbreaks in early 2020 the Food and Drug Administration underwent unprecedented deregulatory efforts to combat the pandemic. Nearly two years later, we can safely say that less oversight was an overwhelming success. Under the FDA's Emergency Use Authorization Statement, private laboratories were permitted to develop and administer COVID-19 tests without the agency's permission. Testing availability rapidly increased and only two of 140 tests were recalled as of August 2020. A similar approach brought patients blood transfusion treatment and access to the experimental drug remdesivir. Remdesivir became the only drug to be fully approved by the FDA without undergoing the formal drug approval process since the 1970s. And the agency also allowed vaccine developers to stagger their approval phases to quickly bring COVID-19 vaccines to market. But the FDA's recent crackdown on a long-standing and reputable product is a sudden and concerning return to its pre-COVID ways. So last month, the agency sent a warning letter to Owlet regarding its very popular smart socks, which monitors a baby's pulse and oxygen levels while it sleeps. The letter states that the FDA now considers the product to be a medical device, requiring it to be approved before it can be legally sold on the market. Consequently, Owlet was asked to remove its product from the market or face seizure injunction and civil money penalties. But why is the FDA coming after the Smart Sock now? Owlet's product has been on the market since 2015, releasing three editions and helping to monitor over 600,000 infants, while earning the trust of millions of parents. It's also commonly used in the UK, Canada, and New Zealand, where it has never generated safety or efficacy concerns. Perhaps more confusing than the FDA's strange timing is its willingness to remove a product that literally saves lives. Oak Bend Medical Center estimates that between 10 and 15% of newborns receive treatment in a neonatal intensive care unit for a variety of post-birth concerns. Now many of these infants require further monitoring of vital organ functions for long periods after they're released. Owlets product helps to provide this critical role and many grateful parents can attest to this. Thankfully, declining over the past decade, nearly 2300 or thankfully declining over the, next, the last decade, t- nearly 2300 infants still perish annually from sudden infant death syndrome or SIDS. And although the causes of SIDS are frustratingly difficult to determine, careful attention to vital organ function can save lives. So, is safety worth the risk, or more safety worth the risk, of removing products from the market? See, the smart sock isn't perfect. A study found in the Journal of the American Medical Association uh, found that the sock was 90% accurate in detecting low oxygen levels and a low pulse. So, that's not ideal. As study leader and physician Chris Bonafide noted, if something's going wrong with a sick infant, you'd want to know that 100% of the time. But the choice parents face is not picking between perfect or imperfect monitoring devices. And in this case, we're being reminded the FDA has never approved a completely effective product because no such product exists. Instead, as economist Robert Higgs has previously explained, the FDA's only authority is to remove or prevent products from reaching patients and parents. So in many cases, this leaves patients with few or no options to treat or help monitor serious medical conditions. As Raymond March points out, the FDA historically prevented antidepressants, insulin, and beta blockers from reaching U.S. patients decades after they were treating patients in Europe. Today, patients who hope to receive genomic, meaning genetic-based and tailored medication, often can't receive treatment because the FDA's approval process is ill-suited to test and approve these medications. Now the Smart Sock and those who depend on it are in a similar situation. After the Smart Sock is removed from the market in the coming months, it will be placed under review for several years until it's approved. Currently, there are no FDA-approved devices that track both pulse level and oxygen intake for infants. There is only one FDA-approved oxygen intake monitoring device for infants. The cost of the agency's decision is hundreds of thousands of infants going without a highly reliable monitoring device and countless sleepless nights for parents fearing for their child's health or life. So when it comes to Owlet's Smart Sock, the FDA seems to have forgotten its recent successes in exercising less oversight and reducing regulatory stringency. Considering the FDA regulates nearly 40% of all consumer products, its recent actions are a strong cause for concern. And Raymond March says, as a health economist, I'll be monitoring the situation closely. That's a nice touch. So I've got a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhide.show.com. I hope you'll take a look. I hope, you'll, I hope you'll do some delving into these topics on your own. You probably already are, but in those show notes, you will find well-sourced ser- well and well-researched information that will allow you to proceed forward on your own quest for knowledge. I mean, look, I could sit here and I could spoon-feed you the pablum all pre-chewed and just like a baby bird. Here, let me just regurgitate this into your mind, and then you can go out and parrot whatever I'm saying. But that's demeaning to you, and it's, it's demeaning to me too. I don't want to treat you like a child because you're not. I do want to give you information that hopefully sheds some light on what's happening in the world around you. And above all, as I mentioned earlier, leaves you more certain of who you are and what you stand for than simply who or what you're against. So, knock on wood. That's what I'm trying to accomplish here. Let's hope some good is being done.